and pastor this north site of Cardiff Vineyard Church with my wife Sophie, and it's our joy and our pleasure to do that. Um, and this morning I'll be continuing the series that James kicked off last week, The Truth, Jesus in a Post-Truth Culture. Last week James explained that in today's society, in order to stay true to the faith uh, that we live by, we need a gospel resilience. And this morning I want to talk to you about our gospel identity our gospel identity. And we're basing much of this series in the book of John, in the gospel of John. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd love to encourage you to get your Bible out, maybe on your phone, turn to John's gospel, chapter eight. Don't worry if you don't have a Bible with you, the verses should appear on the screen behind me as I read it out. But just to give you guys a bit of context for where we've got to in John's gospel, chapter eight. By this point, Jesus's ministry is in full swing. He's already started to perform a number of miracles. He's walked on water. He's fed 5,000 people with just a a couple of fish and some loaves of bread. He's turned water into wine, and he's started to heal a number of people. So there are these things that have been going on, these miraculous signs of Jesus, and word is starting to get out about who he is. And even Jesus, Jesus himself has started to make claims about being the son of God and the light of the world. But this wasn't sitting well with everybody that heard this news. Many of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, questioned the validity and claims that were being made about Jesus. And in chapter 8, we find Jesus defending the validity of his testimony and giving answers for the Pharisees' challenges. So if you'd like to turn to your Bibles, we'll be starting, picking up in verse 30, which says, Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. Even as Jesus spoke, many put their faith in him. And continuing in verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. And I'm going to stop there. This is the passage that we'll be exploring this morning and looking at in a bit more depth. And what I want us to consider as we take a look at this passage is this. What happens when people encounter the truth about Jesus? What is the difference for those who accept the truth and choose to believe it compared to those who reject it? And finally, what does it mean for us to be set, bu- set free by the truth? What does that mean for us? But before I go any further, I'd just love to pray for us as we open up this word. Father God, we've, we've worshipped you this morning and sung praises to you about how good you are. You are so good to us. You are so good to us, and you have so so many good things in store for us. And I pray this morning as we begin to delve into your word and delve into this passage, would you open up our hearts to receive the truth that you have for us this morning, truth about who you are and who we are in you. And would it set us free this morning from all the things that we've carried in here, all the things that are holding us back, would there be freedom for us in this place this morning? In your name and for your glory, amen. James did a fantastic job last week and gave us such a strong starting uh, point for understanding the post-truth culture that we're living in. And he summed up his introduction by stating this, that a post-truth world is not one in which the truth has ceased to exist. It is one in which it no longer matters. 
I'll say that again. A post-truth world is not one in which the truth has ceased to exist. It is one in which it no longer matters. You might recall that last week James mentioned a guy named Emil Rattleband. Uh, this is the guy who was in the news recently because uh, though his birth certificate says that he's 69 years old, he decided that he wants to identify as a 49-year-old. Uh, simply because he feels 20 years younger and because a medical professional had said to him, you've got the body more like a 49-year-old than a 69-year-old. His rationale was, well, age is just a number. If I feel 49, why can't I say I'm 49? Clearly, Emil is 69. <laughs> That's what's on his birth certificate. That is a fact. But because he feels a certain way, he wants to be able to justify a new truth for himself. A fake truth, if you will. He doesn't care what's true or what's fact. He wants to set his own truth based purely on the way that he feels. I don't actually know whether Emil is serious about wanting to change his age. He might just be wanting to make a point about something he sees in cultures today. But I think this story gives us a really clear example of the struggle we face today in helping people make a clear distinction between truth and feelings. You see, many, you, you see many people grappling with this all the time in all kinds of situations and issues in their lives. This tension between living by what I think, believe, or know is true versus living based on how I feel. This truth versus feelings. And the danger is that we choose to find truth in our feelings, that we come to the conclusion that there's more truth to be found in how we feel than the truth that is found outside of ourselves. This is the danger. And as a result, we choose to base our entire lives, every decision, around what feels right rather than what is right. In, society we, in the society we live in today, truth is now considered to be a gray area. It's become blurry and undefinable rather than black and white and clear cut. And as James explained last week, in our post-truth culture, truth has become deeply subjective. You have your truth, I'll have mine. You might have heard people say or even said these things yourself, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Or whatever floats your boat, if it makes you happy, go follow your dreams. Just be yourself, whatever that really means. What does that really mean? Most of these center around our individual desires. We have enthroned the self as the highest authority. Our society today places individualism as one of its highest values. Now, don't get me wrong. It is important that we acknowledge that individualism does have some really positive attributes which reflect the truth of Scripture. You know, that we should value each individual person, that every person has rights, and that each person is encouraged to think for themselves. These are all really good things. And many of the freedoms and privileges that we have in the West today have been born out of individualism. And we should not be afraid to celebrate that. But what started as individualism has now become radical individualism. People seeking complete freedom from any authority. I govern my own life and nobody can tell me what to do. I'm going to choose what I build my life and what values I will live by. And it's these things and these values that we build our lives on that, that become the things that we find our identity in, that we place our identity in. In Emile's case, I'm going to decide how old I am, and nobody can tell me otherwise. 
And unfortunately, it's this desire for complete liberation from all authority that becomes a major barrier for some people in embracing the truth of the gospel and the authority of God in their lives. Now, it's not new for Christians to be wrestling with and questioning the shifting views of the surrounding culture. It's been going on for 2,000 years, and I'm pleased to say that the church is still here. (laughs) So we don't need to be scared of culture and the questions that um, culture is posing, but we do need to be aware of them. We don't need to be afraid of the changing culture around us, but we do need to try and understand it if we're going to be able to engage with it. Alan Scott, in his book Scattered Servants, puts it this way, We need to develop a faith that isn't just strong enough to survive culture, but that is bold enough to transform it. A faith that that isn't just strong enough to survive culture, but is bold enough to transform it. One of the goals of this series is to help open our eyes to the messages and values of our culture so that we can understand the world in which we live. But above all, our primary goal in this series, and my primary goal this morning, is to help us know and proclaim the truth. My desire is that we, as a community, would know the truth and be confident in the truth. The, the truth that we live by, the truth that has the power to save and restore, not just you and me, but this wonderful city and this entire nation. What truth? The truth that Jesus came and died and rose again to free us from our sins, to reconcile us back to God, to offer us a way to receive eternal life, and to fully restore us to the glorious purpose for which we were made, children of God, made in his image, who reflect and reveal the creator to all creation. That is the truth. And as, James, as I mentioned last week, James explained that we need a gospel resilience. We need to know and be confident in the gospel we believe in and the hope that we carry. He said, God has not given us a watertight argument. He has given us a watertight person. I love that. Jesus came to earth and proclaimed that he was the truth and that the truth was found in him. Unlike the post-truth individualistic culture around us which says, you will find the truth when you look within, our belief is that the truth is not found within ourselves, it's found in Jesus. And so this morning, what I want us to become aware of and confident in is our gospel identity. And I want us to explore why knowing our gospel identity and rooting our identity in Jesus is so important. So let's dive back into John 8 and begin to unpack that passage. Starting with verse 30, which says, Even as Jesus spoke, many put their faith in him. What we see here is that people respond in two different ways to Jesus and the claims that are made about him. There are those who reject him and his teachings, and there are those who accept him and put their faith in him. If we read on in verse 31, it tells us that to the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold, tru- if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. This brings us back to this issue of authority, what we choose to build our lives on and the values we live by. Either we accept the claims about Jesus or we reject them. If we reject them, then we're either saying, I don't believe it's true, or it might be true, but it doesn't matter to me. Or it might be true, but I'm not prepared to give control of my life away. I'm happy with my life just the way it is, me in control. And this is obviously the case for so many people in this world today. However, if we accept that what the Bible tells us about Jesus, that he really is who he says he is, and that what Christianity claims he did really happened, then we must embrace a new reality 
a gospel reality for our lives. And this changes everything. Everything we thought we knew changes in the light of the truth. Jesus tells them, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. He is saying that if you accept the truth about who he is and put your faith in him, then he expects you to obey his teaching. You are expected to live differently, not based on what you think is right or what the world thinks is right, but what he says is right. What he is effectively saying is, if you want to follow me, then you need to do as I tell you. He is saying that in order to follow him, we must realize that we don't set the rules anymore and the, the world doesn't set the rules anymore. If we choose to follow Jesus, then we are accepting him not only as our savior, but as our king. And we must realize that as our king, he has complete authority over our lives. And that can actually be quite jarring to hear, can't it? As I said that, some of you might, found, might have found that quite hard to hear and maybe even accept this morning. And that's because our culture has so ingrained within us the belief that we should be in charge of our lives and any challenge to that authority can feel threatening. And so even when we've accepted Jesus, we can still find it difficult to be fully surrendered to his authority. So my first point is that we can respond to Jesus in two ways. We can either accept him or reject him. And if we choose to accept him, then we must be prepared to give him full authority over our lives. Let's move on and take a look at verses 32 to 34. Jesus continues in verse 32. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Jews answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Have you ever had one of those moments when someone shines a light on something in your life, maybe it's a habit or something that you do, that you just weren't aware of? Um, I've discovered that since I've been married that these moments happen a lot more frequently. Uh, I just guess it's the, the, what happens when someone lives with you and sees the ins and outs of how you live. I'll give you an example. Um, it's, it's about me. Uh, uh, I have discovered that I have a bad habit, I'd say it's a bad habit, Soph tells me it's a bad habit, of leaving my socks just about anywhere in the house. I think it's that when I get home and take my shoes off, I instantly want to get my socks off as well. I just want to get some air to my feet and let them be free. You know, it's hard right now, just, they're contained. Get some fresh air on them. And what happens is, I don't think, oh, I should probably take these smelly socks up to the laundry basket. I think they can just go down the side of the sofa. Or, <laughs> or, or they can just like sit on the sofa for all I care. They, or they often, the spot they often end up on is on the stairs. They're just like a welcome. Our front door opens to the stairs like, hello, socks. You ready to put me on? But I'm not putting you on because we're inside now. And, and so... I didn't realize that this was something I did until I was obviously married. And Soph was like, do you realize that you just take your socks off and leave them anywhere? And I defended myself. But the evidence was quite overwhelming against me. So, so she kind of won that. Um, won that. I still do it. I haven't really changed. I should work on that. Anyone else? Is that true for anyone else? It's just me then. Okay. Gross, Ian. Um, Sometimes we are completely oblivious to our behaviors until someone points them out to us. And in these verses, Jesus talks to the Jews about the truth uh, having the power to set them free. But they were confused. 
They didn't understand what they needed to be set free from. As far as they were concerned, they were Abraham's descendants, God's chosen people, and that was their identity and their salvation. In their minds, they weren't slaves to anyone. And even though at that point in history, the Jews were under the rule of the Roman government, they still had political and religious freedoms of expression. So what did they need to be set free from? What they had failed to understand was that Jesus was talking about another type of slavery, a form of slavery that has had its grip on every person that has ever lived, the slavery of sin. Sin, the selfish, disobedient, rebellious, evil weed that roots itself deep within us and spreads into the things we think, say, and do, corrupting us, separating us from God, wrecking our relationships, and filling us with guilt, shame, and regret. That is sin. The Jews Jesus was talking to didn't realize that they were slaves to sin. And I want to point out that many of the people who reject Jesus today do so because they are not aware that they are enslaved to sin. They are unaware of the grip that sin has on their lives, unaware that sin not only ha- not uh, <laughs> unaware of the impact that sin has not only on their relationship with God and not only on their relationship with others, but also the impact sin has on their eternal destiny and purpose. And therefore, they are unaware of their need for a savior. But Jesus says to those who realize their need for a savior, to those who do receive him, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So how is it that knowing the truth has the power to set us free? I actually think it's quite simple. When we discover the truth, we become aware of our condition. When we become aware of the sin that we're enslaved to, we also become aware of our need for a savior. And in that moment of revelation, if we choose to accept Jesus and all that he has done for us, he sets us free. So far from this passage, what we've, what we've found is that if we accept Jesus and put our faith in him, then we need to give him authority over our lives. We've also seen that the truth has the power to set us free from our sin. And now we reach what I feel is the crux of this passage and the heart of my message. And it centers around our identity and what we find our identity in. You see, over the course of our lives, our identity is being formed and shaped through the experiences and relationships, through culture and the media and the world around us. We are constantly seeking to define who we are in any way that we can. So let me ask you, who are you? What makes you, you? What is the most important thing about you? What do you currently find your identity in? Is it in the career or job that you have? Is it in the fact that you're a husband or a wife or a parent or that you're currently single or dating someone? Do you somehow find identity in the neighborhood you live in? Or the car that you drive? Or the football team that you support? Maybe your identity is currently rooted in your sexuality. Or perhaps it's wrapped up in the sin that you're struggling to overcome. Often we feel a pressure to define ourselves through these things. They're what culture tells us we should find identity in. I've become aware in recent years that growing up, I put a lot of my identity in my achievements getting good grades, and trying my best at being a little bit better than some of the other people in my class. That's what gave me value. That's what I found my identity in. And that sense of competitiveness and comparison is something I've carried through into my adulthood and still have to process sometimes. 
But what I've learned and what I'm still learning is that God sees me and he loves me and he values me just as I am. He doesn't compare me to anybody else and I don't have to win his favor. But when I forget that and resort to seeing my worth in achieving things, then what happens when I feel like I failed at something? I'll tell you, what happens is the foundations of the identity I've built begins to shake. And I begin to operate out of a place of stress and vulnerability. And this can affect my mood, my emotions, my relationships, and it can stop me from functioning. We are bombarded with messages from our culture telling us to define ourselves by external measures. But what would it look like to base our identity on the way God sees us? The psychologist David Benner says that an identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. When we think of who we are, the first thing that should come to mind, come to our mind, is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. The goal is that we stop trying to define ourselves altogether and instead let the identity God has given us permeate our entire being and shape the way we live. The answer, writes Glenn Harrison, is to stop judging, rating, or scoring yourself as a person altogether. Stop trying to label yourself as good or bad, worthy or worthless. Embra instead, embrace and accept your biblical identity. How God, see how God in his grace now sees and understands you. This is what we're after. That we should be people who know our gospel identity. So what is our gospel identity? Well, we find part of the answer in verse 35. In verse 35, Jesus continues, Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. I love that. This is where we discover our gospel identity. In the midst of talking about truth and sin and being set free, Jesus begins to talk about belonging to a family. And how a slave has no permanent place in a family, but a son belongs there forever. This is consistent with a verse from the beginning of John's gospel, um, John 1.12, which says, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The good news is that the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that when we respond to Jesus by accepting him as the truth and putting our faith in him, not only are we set free from our sin, we also become adopted children of God's family. And this is the key, this is the crux of my message today. The gospel isn't just what we're saved from, it is also about what we're saved for. If you take anything away from this, my message this morning, please let it be this. The gospel of Jesus isn't about you being saved from your sin. It's not just about you being saved from your sin. It's more than that. It's also about your identity being restored and the purpose you've been created for being redeemed. If we, live out of an, if we live out of an identity based on how God sees us, we will no longer feel the need to find worth in our external circumstances, but instead we will find it in the unconditional love of our Father in heaven. That's what we're after. Is that you this morning? Is being, deeply is being a deeply loved child of God at the core of your identity? Or do you often find yourself going back to those things that you've ident identified yourself in, the things you do or don't do, the things you have or don't have. We have to know how deeply loved we are. For some of us in the room, this is what we need to address today. Perhaps you find it hard to believe what the scripture says. You don't believe that you're a child of God and that, that is your identity. Many today, 
maybe today is the day that you accept Jesus for the first time, that you choose to believe in his name and become an adopted child of God. We'd love to give you the opportunity to respond to that today. Or maybe you've already already accepted Jesus as your king and savior. You know the truth, but it doesn't feel like you've been set free. There's still sin in your life that you're struggling with, and you're like, how, how do I get over this? I just don't feel free. The Bible says that I should feel free now, and I just feel trapped. If this is the, cl- if this is the case, please don't count yourself out. And please don't doubt your gospel identity. The day that you put your trust in Jesus, you became a child of God. That's a fact. It's John 1.12. That is your identity. The, and the Bible doesn't assume that 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 the change in your habits and your behaviors will be instantaneous. Oh. It takes time to learn how to live out of your new identity. This is what Paul says in Romans 12 too. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Being transformed and having your mind renewed is a process, and it takes time. And this is something that James will be looking at in more depth next week. The process of being changed by the truth. And I find this picture and process of adoption really helpful for getting my head around this. Let me explain. On the day a child is adopted, they become fully a part of that family. They can never be more or less a part of that family. On that day, their identity changes. And they may even take on a new surname. That day that the child is adopted, they become fully, 100% part of the family. But it will take time for that child to work out what living as a part of that family looks like, how the family acts and behaves, what the values and expectations of that family are. And it's exactly the same for us as we come into God's family. I want to finish this morning by reading a short excerpt from a book called Live Like Jesus by Putty Putman. It's a cool name. In which... (laughs) in which I think he neatly summarizes what we've been looking at this morning. This is what he says. It should come up behind me as well. Every one of us needs an identity. We need a way to think of ourselves and to understand the value we have and where it comes from. We are meant to be plugged into something, to draw life, security, value, and significance from something. God designed it so that the majority of these deep needs get met through our parents when we are young. We are supposed to feel safe because of their care. But as we age, we develop a sense of self that is independent from our family of origin. But we, will, but we are still meant to get these needs met through connection with something. As we grow up and l- we learn the pattern of the world, the words, others bec- the words of others become a form of truth for us. We operate in these ways because before we come to faith in Christ, it is the only option available to us. We are plugged into the world around us. We cannot help but look to the world to give us something. Our sense of worth is connected to the messages of others, connected to the messages others send us, and we take those messages as truth. And Putty goes on. He says, Faith begins to lift us above that level of existence. As we connect with the realities of the Spirit in meaningful ways, we are freed from the need to be plugged into the world. Our worth and our value derive from Jesus, not the opinions of others. Ultimately, we are meant to be connected to and in relationship with Jesus. Jesus provides us with a sense of significance, security, value, and life that we seek. And he invites us into that 
when we come to life in him. Guys, let's be a people who stand confidently in the truth of who Jesus is and the gospel identity we have in him. If you're able to, why don't you stand?